Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Gabe Cooper, founder and CEO at Virtuous, a non-responsive nonprofit CRM and marketing platform helping nonprofits build lasting relationships with their donors. He's also written a, a top-selling book called Responsive Fundraising. Gabe, excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So where I would love to start, because we have a, a ton to, to talk about. I know that Virtuous is a great story that I think a lot of us can learn from. Can you tell us a little bit about Virtuous and just kind of set the stage, maybe provide some context, and then we'll get through product market fit, and then we'll, then we'll kind of get into, into the meat of this. Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't come out of the nonprofit space, the easiest way to think about what we're doing is HubSpot for nonprofits. So we're okay. system of record plus a bunch of cool marketing tools for the nonprofit space, which really does have a like a a set of vertical needs. And so we're, as a company, we're really just focused on growing global generosity. That's really all we care about. So it's great to work with these amazing organizations. In terms of stage, we're really kind of more growth stage, like post product market fit. We have about 140 folks on the team. Our headquarters are where I'm sitting in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And so have a pretty robust sales and go to market team as, as part of that. And it really is for us, looks more like a, Kind of an inside sales motion like you might expect when you're buying a, a tool like a, a zendesk or a hubspot and yeah. so for, i'm sure for many of the listeners you're either accustomed to selling or buying that sort of software and so that's kind of right. the easiest bucket to put us in perfect perfect so is it so when i when i think of nonprofit crms i'm talking about any kind of nonprofit. does it have to be big small it, it it's completely ad adaptable yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Once you start digging around our space, you realize it's, it's bigger than most people think. So there's 1.5 million nonprofits in the U.S. that do about 1.7 trillion in revenue. About 470 billion of that is donation revenue. So it's like two and a half percent of U.S. GDP. So yeah. the TAM is wow. actually a little bit too big. Dude. So yeah. we really narrow that down to the what we call the mid-market of the nonprofit space. And so our sweet spot is orgs between like they're raising donations between about a million and a hundred million plus of donation revenue. So there's call it 80,000 logos kind of in that swath. And, wow. and so that's, those are the, really the folks that, that we're focused on in that, that size of organization. It's a really good fit for our product. Plus it's, it works better for an inside sales motion. Sort of, you can make the, the pricing and unit economics work out for an inside sales team in that chunk of the market. So, so let's talk a little bit about, you started this company, you have this idea. I know that you've been in the nonprofit space quite a bit and, and, and listeners can, can dive into your background, obviously online, but we're, we're, we're looking at this solution. You understand that all the donations that come into a nonprofit in all forms from, from hundreds, if not thousands of different people, I mean, that is a, just a cluster to just try to figure out how to manage and have anything behind. And you have this idea and you put it together, like how quickly did it take you to go to product market fit from the very beginning? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. 
probably a couple of things worth mentioning there. I think one is that I ran a software consulting business before Virtuous and about half of our customers were really big nonprofits. And so we were in this very fortunate position where we had a profitable business and a team of people that came from industry and a great product team, which allowed us to lock ourselves in the room and, and build out a, a product that was kind of far more viable than it was minimum, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then launch. So we we launched self-funded using our consulting dollars and sold to our first 10 to 15 customers and spent a lot of time just being really customer and product centric. Like we're very I'm a product, I'm a product guy. Like I was a software developer by trade. And so really spent the early days like self-funding, <laughs> validating whether people actually cared what we were building and getting direct feedback from those early customers before we ever decided to sort of raise money or scale. And that it was, we probably took about a year building out that initial product. And I, I would say it was probably another year before we felt like, oh gosh, okay, we we have something here that we can scale. And so yeah. it's, you know, it, it always takes longer and costs more than you think, but that was roughly yeah. our timeline. So, so that's interesting. It's the it's that I, you can almost feel it when you got something, right? It's the oh my god, I think we got something here. Yes. Talk to talk to me a little bit more. Like, is that did you have numbers behind it to say, hey, I'm looking at month over month growth on specific metrics? Is it a little bit of a feel thing in the way that you just saw that it, it, you know your sales team have success, inbounds coming in? Like, what what were the things that kind of gave you those feelings? Yeah, I I mean, there's a couple of things. One is initial marketing excitement. So we were, we, we're category creators. <laughs> and so the same way, like HubSpot created inbound or site created customer success, we're kind of using, there's a book called play bigger, right? And we're kind of use that same sort of thoughtfulness around how we present what we're doing as differentiated. And as we started presenting those ideas, there was just like so much excitement in the market, which is, which is a great signal. And then once they see the tool, they're like, oh my gosh, like, the tool actually executes on everything you guys are saying, but honestly, so many startups have that. And so it's, <laughs> it's actually can be a little bit of a false signal, especially if you're asking your friends and family, what they think about your yeah. product. And they're like, yeah, it's great, but it doesn't actually mean that it can scale. And so yeah. I think it's actually, for me, it's gross retention. It's not even net revenue retention. It's like, Interesting. In the early days, it's like you have to wait at least a year to see how many logos stick around for that second year. Like, I don't think you can even talk about product market fit until you've had like a couple of cohorts run through renewals after a year. And yeah. if they're yeah. willing to give you money again at, you know, a rate, let's say over 85%, then you might have something. Otherwise, yeah. It's all just noise, in my opinion. Yeah. No, that's interesting because it's fairly counterintuitive to what, what you typically hear and see is just collect as many logos. And if you, if you see this kind of pop for a couple of months back to back to back, you, you know, it looks like you got something and all of a sudden it's off to the races and let's pour money in this. How did you, is it, is it based on experience? Is it based on the, you know, you've been doing this for a, a, a while that you, you saw good things happening, right? You saw this excitement happening. 
it takes a lot of discipline to not just say, Hey, let's maybe go raise venture capital or let's go outside money or let's say, hey, let's take all the money that we got and let's dump it onto this thing. Like that takes a lot of discipline to not just go over the top excited. How did you, how are you managing that? I think there's a couple of things I'm in Arizona. Like it's a flyover state, man. So we're not like the burn a ton of venture really fast kind of place, yeah. right? We operate businesses like businesses that, you, you sell stuff for more money than you lose kind of state. And so that's part of it. And part of it is this is, this business is my life mission. Like I care deeply personally about generosity. Like I can't afford to fail. Like I, I'm not going to burn through a bunch of VC and be like, Oh, that didn't work. I'm doing the next thing. Like this was the thing. And so I think that creates a certain sobriety. It probably also helps. Like I'm 47 and a half, five kids, like, you know, it's all of that sort of combines to create like sort of this soberness around unit economics that, that makes you have a more measured approach to product market fit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's an understated point. I mean, I, you, you see a lot of times these, these businesses pop up because people want to start a tech company or they want to raise venture capital and they think it's some cool idea and they're not as passionate about it. I mean, to, to say this is your life's work to, you know, you've been in this industry for a long time. And then you also have the, what I like to call experience of saying, Hey, I have a family and I, I can't take the luxuries of just swinging. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work type of thing. So that's, that's interesting. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about the fact you, you, you've been holding on to these companies, you see growth happening, marketing starting to work really well. Customers are saying all these really nice things. You obviously are doing a lot of the initial selling. At what point in time did you start to bring on additional team members into the sales department? Was it sales individual contributors like sales reps or was it sales leaders and sales reps? Like what, what did that initially look like? Yeah, I think I read Mark Roberge's sales acceleration formula and a couple other books. Oh, yeah. So, and, and also I'm a product person by trade. I'm not a salesperson. And I think both of those things gave me an early advantage to say, if I'm going to have predictable, scalable revenue, it can't be founder led sales. Like I'll hop in deals every once in a while, but I would rather lose deals in the early days figuring out a predictable, scalable sales motion than win every deal just because the founder gets on the phone, right? So right. from the very beginning, it was it was hiring, you know, our first rep who is really more of like a player coach, kind of those, those first reps, you really want to be people who are entrepreneurial not enough to figure it out on the job. So like, let's say like a rep, from a big, like an Oracle may not be a great fit because they expect to be plugged into a machine. Really you want like a half rep, half entrepreneur to come help you actually sort through what the right selling motion looks like. And so that's what we did. We yeah. had a couple of reps like that and then hired, hired the guy who's actually now my CRO out of, he was at SAP and financial force before, but could really start now institutionalizing those learnings and so that they were predictable and repeatable to to grow the sales team but but we're always pretty measured in our hiring so even from the early days we looked at like cost to acquire a new dollar of ARR and we knew even as we were experimenting we didn't want to hire reps past the point where it costs us more than about a dollar 50 cents to acquire a new dollar of ARR 
we always wanted to maintain that unit economic and let the the our sales efficiency determine our growth and so only hire sort of reps up to that ceiling yeah and the one thing we, yeah. we could talk about more that i'll add is we we hired sales enablement too late it's one thing for like founders that are trying to get from founder led to growth stage and we're going to hire five new reps like a vp of sales can be a great coach but they aren't always great at like sort of institutionalizing that into training to make it reproducible for your next five reps, right? So you know everybody has the same playbook and they're doing the same thing. And so that's probably a mistake we made is is not bringing in true sales training and enablement early enough. You, that was a lot right, there. Not, not, yeah, you're, you're hitting on a, a couple of big ones. All right, so th this this is really cool. So what... A couple, couple things here is when, let's talk a little bit about metrics because it is so critically important. You've already mentioned gross retention. Now you're talking about cost of new AR, ARR dollars, or R dollars, if I can speak. And when you think about it, you're talking a lot about these like core foundational metrics. Are you, are you putting in a lot of these metrics from the very beginning saying, hey, these are the metrics that we're going to use to say, hey, this is going to be the health of our business or our sales team and that type of thing in order to start making some of these other decisions. 100%. And so, I mean, nobody's perfectly well metric in the beginning. It's just hard to get like the right visibility into the, the data. One of the things we can talk about later is we also hired probably a VP of finance way too late. You should hire somebody who knows staff sales and is a great VP of finance earlier than you think as well. But what, yeah. what that allows you to do is, is focus from the very beginning on cost acquire new dollar of ARR, gross retention and net retention in RR, but particularly focused on <clears throat> across particular cohorts of customers. So, and then across particular product sets. So, I'll give you a great example. We had like three pricing tiers in the early days, like a like our enterprise pro and standard. When we hired our VP yeah. of finance, he came in and said, yeah, your blended cost to acquire new dollar ARR is completely scalable, but you realize like these standard accounts you're selling to at this price point, like we could fire all of those people today and we would actually make more money as a company because, you know, <laughs> that's that your the churn and your ARPA on those accounts doesn't actually perform, right? And so right. now, right. you know, actually we didn't fire all of those standards. I actually love working with with small nonprofits and was and I'm willing to absorb <laughs> a certain amount of yeah, yeah. you know, sort of <laughs> a little pain there. Yeah. Down there. But it's it's massively clarifying when from the very first rep, you're very well metriced because you get this false sense where we have something that's scalable, but the numbers don't actually tell you that it's scalable and you pour gas on the fire too early. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And when I, I, I feel like it's, did you come and say, Hey, I know that these are the metrics that we want to measure. Like these are going to be the things versus, Hey, let's go start doing things and figure out what numbers can we get to. It's really about yeah. setting up that foundation, right? Yeah, I think, you know, at first, I think you're bombarded with, with so many metrics. And so if you're into numbers and spreadsheets like I am, you know, you're like, man, should we use the magic number? Or does this number really matter more than this number? Or is CAC to LTV the thing? Or, 
And so it does take you a while to sort of zero in on what matters for your business. I was fortunate enough to have a couple of people who had scaled B2B SaaS companies on our board and around that could help really zero in on those. So I think there is a little bit of experimentation, but I would encourage everybody like at least pick three to four core metrics. Like the ones that I just named are a great place to start and like double down on those, get them in front of your whole company, make sure they're measured really well. And then if they don't work, you can adjust. So for example, the reason we say cost acquire new dollar AR, not CAC to LTV is we have really high gross retention, which means our LTV is like pushed really far out into the future. And so, If you're scaling really fast, like it's, it's unhelpful. It's like, yeah, that customer is going to be around 10 years. So they may be worth a lot of money someday, but I I can't use that money today. So I I care more about how it's related to my burn more than how, like how much I'm going to get out of them a decade from now. Right. Right. No, it's interesting because, and, and to your point around kind of the different tiers of your pricing, it's one thing to set your your metrics, right? To to actually say, hey, this is what I want to measure. It's another thing to actually go measure it. It's another yeah. thing to actually go back through your actual numbers and go, hey, what does the actual thing tell me? Right? Look yeah. at the numbers to say, hey, I can fire everyone in this tier and we make more money. That is how you actually use data to make decisions for running your business. Now you choose however you want. Hey, I can take some of that pain and pressure and that type of thing to keep some of them. But that also shows where do you invest in the business? What do you need to double down on? Hey, where do we want to support those types of things? So it's 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 an interesting call. I, I love that that you kind of snuck that in, but I wanted to make sure that I, I got back to it. Um, so let's 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 talk a little bit about your your first sales reps because I think that's really important. A lot of the times that I I, I get asked for it every time. Well, who who's my first sales rep, and should I hire a VP of sales first to figure it out, and then that type of thing. How long was it between the time you hired your first sales reps, these entrepreneurial folks, to the time that you hired your CRO? Like, is this is this months or is this is this a year, two years plus? No, it's it's probably a a year or two. And I'd actually be really careful about overtitling people, <clears throat> just in general. I mean, I'd start with maybe kind of a director of sales, maybe VP of sales max and and not actually name a CRO too early because what's required of a CRO from let's say scaling to 10 to 50 million dollars in ARR is fundamentally different than the person you need in the seat in the early days and sometimes that person can make my CRO my current CRO happened to make that transition he just happened to have the headroom to be able to transition from one to another most people don't right and so my original sales reps were, yeah, very entrepreneurial. I had one director of sales in the early days, Don, she was really a player coach and, and carried a bag herself, but spent half of her time like coaching and talking to two other reps. Right. And that was like, that was it. And then I, I, I didn't do yeah. many of the calls, but I stayed really close to it to like, right. hey, what are we hearing on calls? Like, what do we learn about what customers want to buy? How do we need to tweak our message? What what did we learn that we can move over to marketing? And so it was just that for probably a year before we really sort of got up to what, what we'll call a VP of sales level. Like we have a motion that we think is predictable and scalable. 
Now, if we wanted to hire five new reps, how do we institutionalize that? And that's really like when we moved yeah, to the yeah. VP of sales level, but that was like a year. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good call out because, because it's, I think the entrepreneurial reps are, are, are super critical, but it's interesting that he might be a CRO today, but he wasn't exactly a CRO when you hired him. Now that's the aspirations and that's the hope. And you hope that, you, you know, whatever that hire turns into that, that next, that next need, but you hire him as a, as a director, as uh, what I like to say is just, you're the sales leader, yes. regardless of whatever the title is, you're the sales leader and you need to help with the coaching and the training and that type of thing. So I want to, I want to kind of wrap some of this into what you mentioned was sales enablement, because a lot of times you are so your post product market fit. You're start. You have your sales reps. You're starting to get some really good things. You now have your play, your player coach who's doing a little bit of selling, a little bit of coaching. You have some frameworks and some playbooks and things, and and ultimately you're starting to build out this this scaling motion. And one of the things that can truly really hurt a sales team is focusing all the non selling activities. So finding what sales content to make and figuring out what dashboards and understanding all the conversion rates and getting so stuck into trying to figure out what the numbers are. So you're talking about sales enablement. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about your definition of sales enablement, because I know everybody has a different one. And then kind of like, when, when did that person kind of come in into the organization? Like, what was the org structure looking like? Yeah, we didn't really institutionalize that role until we were probably nearly 10 million in ARR. It was like, really, it was wow. shared across like VP of sales and a couple of other people, but it, which is why I said we did it way too late. Like I wish we would have done it at yeah. like one or two. And the reason is, is I have an amazing VP of sales right now, Matt. And, but I would rather Matt be focused on like coaching a great VP of sales. And in many cases, they carried a bag at some point in their career and held a quota. And they're great at like both a stick and a carrot. Like they're great at coaching and encouraging and banging the gong and then holding people accountable, like listening to gong calls with reps. Like, but I don't want Matt like, like tweaking my sales deck or designing out the sequences that I have or or even sorting through named accounts. So for, in our case, we actually use sales enablement for both like, what are the content assets? What are the sequences? What should the sales deck say? Like, how do we organize sales training for the first 90 days of a ramping rep, all of that stuff. But sales enablement also owns like, what are the right named accounts to go after? So like what sub vertical is performing best. And so when we have a new rep, what a hundred accounts should be on their plate. And what is the messaging for those hundred accounts? So it's it's both like sort of the content training piece and like identifying which chunks of the market to attack next. And it's hard for a, a VP of sales to do both of those things well at the same time. It's really two different jobs. Totally. You're right. You're speaking my language. And it's if you had to look at, I mean, it, it, not, now that you had it, you talk about a million to two million in revenue what where do you think like what does the team structure look like because I, I think that there's a different way to look at it than just revenue but is it because you might have really really just different different mechanics as far as what is that some of our listeners have 
Is it a bunch of different sales reps? Is it a, a lot of sales reps? You have an inbound team, outbound team. Like, wh what does the sales motion look like that you think, you know what, if I had a chance to do it again, I'd probably put them in, you know, five reps, 10 reps, because then you're really removing all those non-selling activities from them. Yeah. Yeah, we would have put in sales enablement at five reps. I think from a team structure point of view, <clears throat> I don't know that anybody has this figured out and everybody has a different, very different opinion. And some of them are religious about these opinions. And so I think it varies from company to company and stuff, different stuff can work. Like choices we've made that, that I like is that we arrange our reps into pods of call it five reps with, with a manager. And then we, we surround them with like in our case, an SE, like a solutions engineer sales enablement that are specific to the types of accounts that pod, like the Tacoma revenue pod is going after. And then we assign somebody from the marketing team to provide like the right kind of air coverage. So if your market can support like an ABM motion, we have somebody from marketing like that provides sort of account-based marketing. We also have a small team of, yeah. of SDRs that provide support for each of those pods, but those our SDRs sit under sales. They don't sit under marketing, both inbound and outbound. We found that for us, again, it's different for everybody, but that that SDR motion looks much more like a sales motion. Like they need to be managed like a sales team, not like a sort of more yeah. an arts and crafts marketer. And so it, it makes yeah. more sense to have that team sit under sales. And then enablement's basically supporting like call it the sales managers in each of those pods with like the training and enablement they need to be successful. Now, is that right? I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, but it's yeah. working for us. It's working. <laughs> it's working. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. No, it's interesting because you know, it's, you have, so you have a sales team, you got a sales engineer, you got a sales leader, you got a marketing person, and then you got support from SDRs. That's that's a lot of people who are all helping each other as opposed to one marketing team, one sales team, maybe one inbound team versus one outbound team. Instead, you're breaking up into these little mini pods. How have you broken it up? Is it you have inbound versus outbound? You have different kind of tiers of customers like an enterprise mid-market or vertical geography based? I know you're all kind of in the same vertical. Yeah, yeah we split. How have you been able to break it up? Yeah, we split enterprise. We have commercial sales pods kind of their sales team and an enterprise sales team. And so we split by sort of revenue branches because the selling motion looks different. And then within each of those yep. pods, there might be a little bit of vertical focus if it makes sense in terms of the accounts we're choosing just to create some consistency. And then you're right, it ends up being a decent amount of sales support. If you get really good, efficient people, it doesn't add that much to your CAC to have that kind of air coverage. But it does mean if you're going to bring all of those resources around a sales team, it means that they're going to have to be hitting a quota that supports that level of support, right? That's, I think sales reps underappreciate that a little bit. They're like, well, I need, I need an SDR. I need somebody that's giving me all my decks and enablement. I need somebody from marketing helping me out. It's like, yeah, great. Also, your quote is going to go up a lot because <laughs> like a lot, that's a lot. Yeah, I got to afford that. Yeah. So, yeah. but for us, that feels like the right mix at our, our current deal size. But I do think, yeah, depending on your business, there is a big difference in selling to like, hey, we get, we're going to have a 15 day close or even a one call close with a, 
a deal that's less than five grand and it's we're selling to one person at the organization. So churn and burn transactional versus, hey, this is a $300,000 deal. It's six months. We're selling to five different personas at the organization. Like very, that takes a different sort of rep with a different mindset and different patience. And the, the sooner you can sort of break those up, the better you're going to be. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense on, and it all, and it all comes back to those numbers. It all comes back to that, those original metrics to be able to understand, well, what are the quotas and okay, if I'm going to have to hire these people to support the core function of revenue, the quotas have to change. Now you have more people attacking the same problem, then you got to be able to like use a formula, right? Use that equation to be able to say, okay, you were at, and I'm making it up, you know, a million dollars as far as your quota. And now your, your quota has got to go to $2 million, but you also have two additional people who are going to be helping you do this. So a lot of the things that maybe you used to be doing, you don't have to do anymore because those people are going to be doing it. So you should be not only faster, but at a higher clip, higher quality doing all those motions. And that's where you start to move from generalists to specialists inside that that scaling motion yeah 100 percent. that makes a lot of sense a lot of that largely comes down to like how how much hunting you're expecting your reps to do right so on our team right now our reps through abm and outbound our reps might generate 30 percent of their own pipeline but the other 70 percent is coming from inbound like marketing we're doing around our category and partners right so I know that we can tee up, let's say 70% of their pipeline. And so they're spending less time hunting. And so, you know, we're, it changes how you think about quota when your reps aren't spending half of their day trying to dig up new leads. Right. Just exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, how did you figure out the 30%, 70% type of mix? Is that, was it just a, hey, this is kind of a, a general industry rule of thumb is that 20 to 30% band and let's try to push them towards that and let's test it a little bit while sharing sharing that the, the goal should be around that mix? Yeah. In the early days, you have no idea what's going to work, right? So we sprinted down. Just a guess. Yeah, we sprinted down all three of those paths knowing that aspirationally yeah. when we looked at, like if we're looking at a HubSpot or whoever, aspirationally, we can kind of see how their demand gen engine is shaking out and knowing that it should be some mix of those, right? And we, we didn't know where our percentages would shake out. It turns out that by sprinting down all three paths, we landed in a place that is probably pretty similar to businesses like ours. Like that's the mix, right? But I have other yeah. friends that are like growth stage, like they don't have a partner motion at all. They have a similar deal size to us and like, 90% of their demand comes inbound, right? They have these massive inbound engines. And so I'm not saying that couldn't work for us, but that's just not how we found it shakes out. How it worked for you. That makes, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit around just because we didn't, I didn't get to it right away. So you talked a little bit about these initial sales reps who are entrepreneurial, that's an easy thing to say is, Hey, go hire some people who are entrepreneurial sales reps. Like when you're, I, I would imagine that you interviewed quite a few people 
who are sales reps and th there's the, you know, the Oracle, the big company type reps. There's the, we're SDRs and want to be AE reps that have all different types of SaaS experience, come from different kinds of backgrounds. How did you actually identify the right fits for those first, you know, three, four, five, like entrepreneurial sales reps? Yeah. It, it always helps when they've worked at a really small place before and done all of the things. Right. And so sometimes even finding somebody who is a failed entrepreneur, like tried to start something and had to do all of the things. Like it sounds weird saying that you want a failed entrepreneur as some, one of your first sales reps, but I think there's something about the scrappiness that really helps. And a lot of that's interview process. You like, you know, how would you, you know, think about generating demand or how would you think about this? And if the answers are like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do what's in the playbook or I'm going to wait for my SDR to deliver those things as opposed to asking in, in an interview saying like, man, I'm going to pick up the phone and call 30 potential customers tomorrow and just ask them to find out what they want. And then based on what they want, <laughs> I'm going to do 30 more calls to try to pitch people on what I just heard and see how people respond. And if that works, I'm going to start creating a deck or a playbook around what I learned. And I'm going to get in and modify that deck and playbook every day based on what I learned, you know, and like there, you're going to pick up some of that stuff in the interview process where their first answer always defaults to, I'm going to get scrappy. I'm going to pick up the phone. And I'm going to figure it out. Right. And if that's their bent, they're probably a good fit. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the things, so, so they should have some sales experience based, mm -hmm. based on what I'm hearing is they should have been, yes, obviously work at a small company, but they have, should have been selling at some point, something in the back, looking for some, you know, use case scenario analysis type of thing to say, Hey, what would you do in these types of situations? That makes sense to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm resourceful and I'm going to go, you know, I'm gritty and I'm going to go figure it out. It's interesting. I, I, I do a, a lot of hiring around this area and I, I like to call them attributes. Like what are the outside of the sales skills to say, yes, I understand that you do lead gen and then you qualify and so on and so forth. But it's like, what are the attributes that you're looking for? Because then you can actually like identify what it is that you're looking for. Do you use some type like you talked about in the in the hiring profile but do you have like a scorecard or do you have a specific hiring process that you've used that you kind of implement into this that that you've gotten the rest of the team to buy into yeah i mean at this point our cro and vp of sales have a pretty like sort of strict rubric and and questions that they ask for the hiring process and things to drag people through in the early days like Honestly, there's, I think there's two chapters in sales acceleration formula. So for listeners that haven't read that book, it's an oldie, but <laughs> still super helpful. It's a good one. There's like, it's a good two one. chapters and they literally have like these grids that say, Hey, these are the attributes you should look for in a rep. And here's the questions yeah. you should ask for this yeah. stage. And here's like, here's the kind of attributes of a rep that it's okay. If each rep is a little bit different and shows their own personality in these areas. And these are the areas where it's non-negotiable that they have to like follow the script. And so it, I mean, I probably, that book and a couple of others, I just straight ripped off what they were doing for those first set of sales hires as my sort of standard matrix. Yeah. 
I'm, uh, I, I would say that Mark would be very proud of you because I think a lot. Of, I think I don't think you're the only one that's ripped off that book on a lot of different things, but especially that a hiring criteria makes a lot of sense. So when you get into you're you're starting to hire these people, what at what point in time did you start to think? I know that you hired VPs of sales a little bit late, but now you're saying that you would have hired them a little bit earlier or a lot earlier. Walk me through a little bit about when when you hired your VP of, of finance, and then kind of when you when you wish you would have hired your VP of finance. Yeah, I think this is my bias comes from I'm not a finance person. Like I went to business school, but I wasn't particularly good at it. I didn't like it that much, and so like I, I always felt like a VP of finance was a glorified accountant who said no and couldn't move fast, right? It's this like horrible stereotype probably a bunch of entrepreneurs have in the early days, which it is fundamentally not true. And so we hired our VP of finance two and a half, three years ago, far more than halfway into our journey. I wish it, I wish it would have been one of my first executive hires. So even, even like, one to two million in revenue, I wish I would have hired a VP of finance because, and they have to be growth focused and they have to be accustomed to saying yes. And if they have to, it's better to find somebody that came out of whatever. So we do B2B SaaS. It's better to find somebody that came out of B2B SaaS because they, they're going to know the kind of things that you're after. Right. And so by not doing that, we just missed like all the metrics that I talked about were just fuzzy. Like, are we tracking stuff the right way? Like, do we really think about our close rate the right way? Do we think about NRR the right way? You know, and there's some accounting stuff like revenue recognition that if you have it all backwards and wrong, your metrics are going to be all skewed. And so it's just your picture is like way more opaque of the numbers of your business than it should be until that person is in that seat. And then it becomes crystal clear, which allows you to make the right decision far faster. That's interesting. It's, it's funny. Cause when you think about a lot of these, these things that you, that, you, that you've shared first is have metrics. <laughs> Second is pick, pick specific metrics and actually continue to measure them. Yes. which is hard enough as it is to actually set it up to measure it. Then you're then we're talking about how you actually look at those metrics and make decisions off those metrics. And now we're getting to the point where the constant measurement and not only is it the constant but the very very high quality consistent measurement of the same metrics over and over to be able to look back 6 months, a year, 2 years, 3 years ago to be able to say here these are the things that are happening and you are obviously having some success with this business and you're already saying, wait a minute, I'm not a hundred percent confident here. These are a little bit fuzzy. I went, you know what? And then you pull the, pull the trigger on the, on the VP of finance and you're like, I was right. Like it was just a little bit fuzzy. And then now you go back and I, I would, I would imagine now at this point you feel much, much more confident in your rubrics and the way that you're measuring and that type of thing. And I would say like a lot of, in the early days, so many people, their sales playbook is around, how do we win more deals, which is great, right? But some of it should be, how are we tracking deals and putting in the data in a very consistent way that's consistent across all reps? So we use some form of medic for pipeline hygiene. And, yep. and, it, and it get, that's going to give you 
because you you don't if you unless people are putting in data the right way and tracking it the right way you can't actually get good visibility in those metrics so in the early days i would look at my pipeline and somebody would say what how much are we going to close next quarter and be i have no idea like i have no idea how many of those deals are actually like good deals or if some random rep is just everybody he talks to on the phone he's creating a deal for in HubSpot. Like I have no idea. Right. So I have zero confidence right. in the number we're going to close next quarter based on what's in the pipeline right now. I mean, and you can kind of fake like you do, but you really don't know, right? It's not until you create that discipline, which is VP of finance, good enablement, good VP of sales, like discipline, where now I can look at my pipeline and say like, oh, like within 10%, I kind of know how much we're going to close next quarter, which is really freeing as an entrepreneur, right? It's like, it, it makes you sleep way better at night. Yeah. Ac accurate revenue forecasting. It's that the, the, the time and the effort that it takes to build that muscle is exhausting. <laughs> but when you do it and you get there and you feel it. Yes. It does. It absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's a requirement. I mean, you look at, you look at the ones who do it well and you see, you see what happens with the businesses and you see the ones that don't do it well, fuzzy to, to your point, fuzzy things happen. And you know, you, you, you can miss, you can miss on decisions. You can, you can make like really just the wrong decision. You can spend a bunch of extra money on areas that you really didn't need to. It, it's interesting. When you when you look at kind of the trajectory of the sales team, so you have your initial hires, you had your entrepreneurial sales reps, now you had your sales leader, and now you're starting to create all these different types of pods. Like, how do you think about the way in which you're scaling this business? Because you're talking about going from a couple of what were essentially full cycle sales reps who were kind of doing anything and everything to just go get some deals, right? To now you're getting... You got SDRs, you got S, uh, you got marketing people who are doing ABM motions. You got different tiers of sales reps doing different types of motions. Like how, how did you figure out, and maybe we, we do this in a little bit step-by-step, step, but you went from, you know, your initial motion to what, what were your, your second, third, fourth steps as far as breaking apart the team to become more special? Yeah. <clears throat> we made two steps probably at about the same time as when we got how many reps we had when we did this, but we enterprise recognized the difference between more of a commercial sell and more of an enterprise sell. So the first thing we did was split that team. The other thing we did around the same time, which I think is really important is a lot of early sales teams, the salespeople are doing the renewals and they're responsible for expansion revenue, which in the early days is fine. They have the relationship with that customer. You can comp based on it, but it's really not like a good sales rep activity. And after, you know, after the first year, they're going to spend, be spending half of their time going after renewals or expansion rather than doing the thing that they're really good at, which if, if the kind of deal you're selling, if, Potentially 80% of the deal size is based in, in our like net revenue retention, meaning it's later expansion. It's fine having a rep work those deals. But if it's not like we actually created an account management team pretty early on and that account management team sits under customer success and not sales and that, which is pretty, can be pretty controversial. Yeah. But we found that 
account managers who own a number, they own both the renewal and the expansion number, but they sit under customer success and they're very, very close to our customers. Like it, it completely changed the dynamics around both gross and net retention and then took that off the seller's plate. Hmm. So we did that. Oh, I don't know. We were at maybe three, 4 million in ARR when we made that move, but it completely changed both sales efficiency and like turn dynamics yeah. and net revenue retention for us. That's interesting. So you, I mean, you have a, I mean, this is clearly a land and expand type model where you, you get them in and then you're just constantly like, Hey, check this great thing out, check out this next great thing and so on and so forth. At what, what came first? So you have your first cycle sales rep. Did you, did you plug in the account management team or did you plug in CS or customer yeah, success? We did. Like how, how, what, kind of order of operations. Yeah, we did customer success. We had to have customer success from the beginning only because we are a CRM and we migrate data. So like we couldn't get our first customers on without a strong customer success motion. So we did that first. That makes sense. Yeah. And after a few million in ARR, really that creating an account management team under CS that was responsible for renewals and expansion, that was next. Then I think, yeah, probably right after that, we split between commercial and enterprise accounts. One of the things we did early is we started trying to hire SDRs, but we had them under marketing. I know that works for a lot of folks. It just didn't work for us. So that's a mistake that we made in early on. We, we started experimenting with SDRs at probably 2 million in ARR. Before that, it was all marketing and sales led demand gen and just found it was hard to build like a solid SDR motion under marketing. And so probably I don't know what ARR number we were at when we moved those folks under sales, but we probably made that mistake for a couple of years before we finally realized, oh, this isn't working. What what was the what were the indicators that said it wasn't working? Well, the numbers, right? So you kind of have, know how much pipeline gen you need per SDR to be able to pay those people, right? Yeah. So that's the easiest. But, but the other one is yeah. is that like. An SDR engine is, is so much about like relentless discipline because sometimes because of the stage of the career, the folks that are in that are getting hired, it may be like their first time doing this sort of thing, right? Like my son who will graduate college next year, like he would be a perfect candidate for an SDR. Like he, he doesn't know how to do any of it. He has to be really well managed. It has to be a very disciplined, like well measured, like a couple of times a day measuring volume. What are you learning? What are you doing? And that sort of discipline, right? It's rare that you can find a marketing leader that is that like process oriented, right? You have to use both sides of your brain, which is just hard in a marketing function. I know there's a bunch of founders that would disagree with me vehemently here, by the way, and probably for very good reasons, but that's just what we found. That's really interesting. No, I mean, I, I thought you were going to say a bunch of other things and it's interesting that you, you made it really focused on the actual, the, the leader and the type of leader. If you put a, like a marketing leader and a sales leader is just very different. Like the personalities, the core, core of what they do each and every single day is, is just Process-wise, completely different from, especially from a creativity standpoint. But it's interesting how that was that was your signal to, to figure that out. Let's let's talk about let's talk about some of those learning opportunities that you've that you've had over the the last couple of years inside this this go-to-market motion. We talked about hiring a sales enablement person a lot earlier. We talked about putting together the core metrics. 
really focusing on those and keeping those consistent. Obviously, you can add more as, as, as it makes sense. We talked about adding VP of finance or head of finance a little bit earlier to help you kind of center around what those numbers look like. Talked a little bit about this this SDR motion. When when you when you think about other places, maybe it like inside the act. Like, is it a, a messaging thing that you got wrong? Was it a targeting thing that you got wrong? Was it a channel thing? Like, when you when you look at some of these scale tactics, all of a sudden, like just because of what got you there, right, is not going to get you to the next level. What what are some of those kind of learning learning moments that you yeah, had? One of the biggest ones early on was because I'm a product person. I think a product is amazing. I love it. It turns out customers don't care, right? And I care really, really deeply. And and I had a hard time letting go of that. And so if you kind of look at like the crossing the chasm curve and you look at like really early adopters, there's some early adopters that just because your tech is super cool and they can kind of, they can see it, right? And they'll buy but nobody after that's going to buy like they they need they're nervous about like am i going to lose my job if i make this purchase like how much pain is it going to cost my organization like what are the personal wins i need to get out of it what what does my organization need to accomplish by making this purchase and then like somewhere eighth or ninth on the list is is the product good right like I missed all of that. And it actually took us a little while to pivot. And especially around that process of creating a category and learning to tell the story that we got better at sort of lining up what are the organizational wins, the personal wins, the the pain that they're currently experiencing, that standing in the way, kind of that hero's journey story arc and walking them through that. And then at the very end, you can show the product and the product sort of matches up to every point in the story. So they've been nodding along to the story the whole way going, yes, we experienced that pain. Yes, we want to get to this promised land you're talking about. And then you show the product and you can map the product to those things. That's magical. I would just skip ahead to the product and be like, look how cool this is. And they, yeah. And we, because of me, we didn't do that good in the early days, but we're much better at it now. And that probably cost us lot of revenue honestly sure that's interesting how long did it take you to figure out the story so it's one thing to actually say the story or not say the story but like did you know when, once you figured out hey i'm only talking about product let's in, in, implement the actual story and did you know that that buyer's journey to be able to like go from beginning of the story to the end of the story and then hey and Here's actually how you go from status quo to, you know, the promised land type of thing. In my early investor, even for my earliest investor pitches, I got a couple of videos of them that I watched. It was, the story was baked into it. And so when I would pitch to investors, this, even a story very close to the story we have now was baked into it. We just didn't bake it into the sales process. And so... And so we started to do that more and more. And then I think it really was probably like our team already played bigger when it first came out and really spent some hard time. Like, and, you know, there's other stuff like people use story brand and other kind of things to help with this, but really locked ourselves in a room and started getting really disciplined and really good about how to tell the story, what parts matter, what points don't. 
And then even for, for sellers, designing a discovery process that you know is going to play into that story. So as a sales rep, you should listen more than you talk anyway. That's something that we also had to learn, by the way. You know, we'd, you'd hear calls and it'd be 80% us talking, which is always bad. But really thoughtful discovery where you're asking the right questions to have the person on the other end of the phone be able to express their pain in terms of the story that you know you want to tell. Like, oh, it sounds like you're having pain in that area. What's that like? Why do you think you guys are seeing what impact does that pain have on your business? You know, and and they start telling themselves the story before you even start pitching the story. And so now it feels like they're just walking right into that story. And then it's not until you've done that clear discovery and had them articulate that story, retold the story with your narrative, showed them the promised land. And then it's like now product. But then the product demo isn't like a two hour demo. It's just like. You know, they they have to believe you have all the table stakes. You're just hitting the core points in their pain and their story that map right back, you know. And now you can go back and say, like, when in Discovery, you said that this would move the needle for your business 10%. Like, you know, does this kind of, does this what I'm showing you match with what you just said? And they're, they're having to sort of say yes out loud. And you know all of this stuff. I'm preaching to the choir, but it took us four years yeah, to get good at this. It's, it's easy to say, but also hard to do. Very hard to do. A, a lot of, I, I get a lot of questions around like, how do I convince people to buy? And it's always not, there's the, just remove that. <laughs> and, and if you ask the right questions, yeah. that's the sales. Like asking the right questions shows them that you know what you're actually talking about. And then when you get to the demo part, it's just... Just show them a couple things, because to your point, it is table stakes. It should it should all do this, 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 and this. It's just let's let's talk about the things that are specific to them. That's right. Because you've been listening. Yeah. Spot on. That's awesome, Gabe. This is awesome. You are a wealth of knowledge. I love the story. Anything that you should you should care to to leave us with? Any 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 final wisdom? Any final things to look out for to, that any of our listeners can take a hold of. You know, the, the one other thing we didn't talk about today was culture, but after kind of going through the early days and then getting into growth stage, just know that, a, that culture can't be corrected quickly. And so a lot of the work you do in the early days around making your team feel like they belong and they can flourish and they're, they have a safe place to succeed and create something great like that hard work in the early days, though it, it feels almost inappropriate in the early days somehow to worry too much about that. The DNA that you set pays off in, in spades later on. And so, and, and people underappreciate that. So I, that's something we didn't talk about, but I think is important. No, I, I, I think that it's one of the the kind of the hidden pieces behind good and bad sales teams is about what happens outside of the numbers, outside of just, hey, here's the go-to-market motion that we use and you should say this or don't say that. But it's all of the other things about how does leadership, how does management, really how across teams, across inside teams, they actually treat each other and help each other and be there for each other. So I, I'm a, a massive, massive culture person in sales environment. I, 
I believe that you can create a motivating environment. I don't think you can motivate people. That's that's just my belief. But I think that if you can create a motivating environment, people will take advantage of it and go from there. And if you support them and that type of thing. So could could not agree with you more there. La- last last couple of questions here. Outside of Marco Berger's book and outside of some of the ones that you mentioned here, leave us with top resource or a top book or a top place that, that you recommend founders and, and sales leaders get a hold yeah, of. I mean, uh, they're... There's so many that I'm, I love reading and, you know, listen to all of the Sassers and 20 VCs and all of this kind of stuff, which I think are massively valuable. I'll say the one book that I read, I read this a while ago, but it really had a profound impact. So especially if you're a founder or early sales leader, the book Lost and Founder or Lost and Founder or Lost and Found, Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin. He was the founder of Mod. Oh, I know Rand. He yeah. is, it, it's about his entrepreneurial journey when he was at Moz and sort of raising capital and then almost selling, not selling, selling again. And it's like, it's yeah. a fascinating picture of outside of the, the VC hype and the tech bubble buzz. It's like this beautiful picture of what the journey actually looks like. That is a great one. I've, I've, I've read a bunch of stuff around Rand, so that, that will be next on my list. How do people get more of you? How do they get a hold of you? Twitter, LinkedIn, newsletter, yeah. tell us. Yeah, I wish I was more active on social, and I'm not. I'm Gabe Cooper on LinkedIn and Gabe on Twitter, though you're going to be sorely disappointed. But the best way to learn more about what we're doing is org. And if you want to see what we've done on category creation, wrote a book called Responsive Fundraising, which was sort of our, our hardback like this is how you do responsive fundraising, which I think is a great resource if you're trying to figure out how to create a category or if you want to look at like a core sort of asset or artifact of category creation. That's fantastic. And what we'll do is we'll link the book to the show notes as well. And we'll go from there. Gabe, this is awesome. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.